Hope some of you guys enjoyed holding the hymnal in your hand again. Parents, I hope some of y'all enjoyed teaching your kids how to read a hymnal and know how to find a verse and all that kind of stuff. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, we're on our final Sunday of Advent before we get to celebrate Christmas in its full-throated form. Uh, only have this Friday evening's uh, Christmas Eve service left for us to gather in anticipation of Christmas Day. Uh, over the last few years, I've really enjoyed being able to uh, celebrate Advent, to observe Advent. Uh, it's not something I grew up with. It's not something that my church growing up that, uh, that we did. Um, but it's something that I, I think the intentional focus on the idea of waiting, on the idea of anticipation, uh, has kind of worked its way into my heart uh, in a way that I didn't think would be all that, I don't know, all that helpful, all that particularly special, but it really has been. It's been helpful for, for me to work through this idea of waiting and anticipation uh, during some difficult times that we've had that I, I just didn't know were, were, were coming. And so to be able to, to intentionally think about how it's okay to wait because of what is coming. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. You see, what I've learned is that there's much to be learned in the waiting. There's much to be learned while we wait. Uh, this Christmas, I've had some kind of unexpected uh, songs stuck in my head, some kind of unusual songs that have put themselves on repeat in my, uh, in, in my heart, in my mind. Uh, usually I find like an artist I've never heard before and I kind of dive in and listen to all their stuff. That's what I've done the last several years. Uh, that didn't happen for me uh, this year. Instead, I've just had these different songs. You guys know if you were here earlier this month, Joy to the World has been one of those. God rest you, Mary Gentlemen has been one of those. As I've preached on those, I've listened to those a lot, and they've kind of worked their way into my heart in ways that they never had before. Uh, but I've also had some that were a little bit more unexpected in my Advent uh, preparations that I've spent some time with. I told you uh, last week that uh, I, I listened to, to Dolly and Hard Candy Christmas quite a bit. Uh, did not expect that to be on my Advent playlist this year, but it was. Uh, and it's actually been pretty, uh, pretty helpful. But I think probably the most unexpected one would have to come from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I did not expect this to be in my Advent playlist this year, but it has been uh, the last couple of weeks. And it is the song, The Waiting. I don't know if y'all know that song. It's from 1981, before your time for some of you guys. Some of you write in your heyday. Uh, but there's, there's nothing particularly redeeming about the lyrics. There's nothing that I can read to you about these lyrics that's going to make you be like, oh, that song was about Jesus the whole time. It's not. Um, it's, it's, it's Tom Petty, but it's a great, it's a great song. But it's, it's the repetition of the chorus that's kind of worked its way into my, uh, into my thinking and kind of something I've just been chewing on for a while. And the chorus goes like this, and I'm not going to sing it because you don't want me to. Uh, but the chorus is, the waiting is the hardest part. Every day... You get one more yard. You take it on faith. You take it to the heart. The waiting is the hardest part. Yeah, the waiting is the hardest part. I cannot tell you how completely unexpectedly uh, that has resonated with me as I have thought through things this month and kind of prepared for this sermon. And I, I didn't always have this, this song in my head uh, over the last few years as I have gone through Advent, as life goes on. Uh, but what I've found is that even though I may not have that song, that idea has become very prominent in my own mind, in my own thinking. That this is so much of how God works. The waiting 
is the hardest part. The waiting is at minimum an essential part, but oftentimes it is the hardest part too. So let's take a look at our text this morning, uh, a familiar one from Isaiah chapter 9, uh, one we've already read a time or two in this Advent season, but one that I think has, uh, is going to be good for us to stare at just a couple of verses within this passage. I'm going to read the whole passage that is the more familiar portion, uh, but then we're going to focus in on just a couple of verses here. So Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of a deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. As I said, this text is one of the more familiar ones. If you've had a chance to listen to Handel's Messiah at all, you know that that is in there. You've probably heard it at other points this time. It's probably uh, on a lot of your Christmas cards that you may have uh, sent out. It is a popular text, but in all honesty, it's also a pretty obscure text apart from the fact that Matthew picks up on it in chapter 4 and tells us specifically that Isaiah is talking about Jesus whenever he writes this verse. Uh, for most, this would be a pretty obscure text, unless, of course, maybe you're a Jew at the time around when Jesus was born, or maybe the time that we know is the time between the Testaments. For most of us, it would be obscure, but if you were an Israelite living under Roman rule in this kind of pseudo-exile, pseudo-independence that they had when Jesus was born, and you'd been under this for hundreds of years, you see, Isaiah's writings would have been very prominent. It would have served as both a warning of what, what was going to happen whenever he gave the prophecy, but would also would have served as hope for so many people of what is to come. Isaiah does both of those in chapter 8 and chapter 9. He gives a warning to his contemporary peers, and he gives hope of what is to come in the future. And if you were living in this time, you would have known these prophecies well. You would have clung to these prophecies well. You would have held on to say, wait a minute, this kind of pseudo-country that we have, this kind of pseudo-exile that we have is not going to last forever, and you would cling to that. Let's look at the end of chapter 8 and just give you an idea of what it is that, that, that Isaiah is really addressing. And I want you to see, because you don't always get this whenever you see this on a Christmas card, but what you need to see is the transition that Isaiah makes and how it informs what happens in chapter 9. So the end of chapter 8, verse 21, says, They will pass through the land greatly distressed. This is Isaiah giving a warning and a prophecy of what's about to happen in the exile, if people continue on the path that they are going on. He's telling them, here's what's coming for you guys. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak uh, contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. 
In chapter 8, Isaiah is listing off the offenses and the results of the actions of Judah that will lead to their eventual exile. It's an ominous passage. You hear how heavy it is in the way that it ends, right? You hear the weight in the way that it ends with this darkness, and it, and it, it talks about gloom of anguish. That's not exactly the part that's going to make it on our Christmas, uh, Christmas cards. It's not the part that we want to talk about. But it's important to understand what Isaiah is trying to say in chapter 9. It is a fitting into the people that refuse to heed the warnings of the prophets. There is nothing unjust about what God is about to do to them. They are about to be led away, conquered by a foreign army, taken from their homes. It is a very, very dark place. I wonder, have you guys ever been someplace where it is completely dark? Like next level, can't see your hand in front of your face, kind of uh, dark. I remember whenever we, uh, we first moved here, uh, I remember recognizing, and we're just coming from Knoxville, it's not like we're coming from some big city, but moving from West Knoxville here, w- what I realized is I can see a lot more stars here. It's just darker here. I remember walking out of the Boys and Girls Club from an event that we had as a church and looking up and thinking, wow, it's really dark. I don't ever remember feeling like it's all that dark. If you live here, you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's just the stars. It's the sky. This is what, this is what it is. But, but for, for me, it was like, wait, this is darker than what I'm used to. And then this summer, we had a chance to go out west. We had a chance to go and visit Yellowstone. You go out to Idaho, and there's not a whole lot of people, and there's even fewer streetlights. And so it gets really dark there. I was able to take Isaiah and Abby out and say, look at the sky. You can see the Milky Way. I didn't even know that was a thing until like a few years ago, that you could actually see that if it's dark enough where you are at. And so even though we had moonlight the whole time we were there, you could tell it was a different type of darkness. It was a different level of being uh, dark. But, But I think the darkest place that I've ever been uh, and I'll be honest with you, I'm going to tell this story and I'm not 100% sure of all the details because I think I was like probably five when this happened, I, I think. So I don't remember all the details, but there's a few key details that I do remember well uh, because I was traumatized by it. Uh, it, it, it. I think it was the darkest place I've, I've ever been. It was at my grandmother's house and uh, we, we were over there visiting, I think it was probably in the afternoon at some point, and I, I'm pretty sure she had some brownies on the counter. And I knew that I needed those brownies. I knew that I had to have those brownies. And I went to get one, and I was told by my mom, no, you can't have any of those. You don't need to eat any of those. Well, that is not what I needed to hear at all. And I don't remember how all of this went down. I don't remember exactly what happened, uh, what was said, how, how long we went back and forth. But what I do remember is I got really mad. I got really upset. Started to, started to cry and pitch a fit. I know y'all can't imagine that I would have done something like that, but I was just a little kid, so you can give me a break. But started to, to, to cry and pitch a fit and, and just knew I had to have those brownies, but my mom wasn't going to... Uh, budge. So I knew that if I stayed in there in, in the house, that was not going to go well for me. I knew this was going to be a problem if I continued to cry and pitch a fit uh, because uh, my mom wasn't going to put up with that and I still wasn't going to get a brownie. So I needed to get out of there. I needed to go uh, somewhere else and get out of that situation so I did not get in what was probably even bigger trouble than I was already in. So I stormed outside uh, and 
and when I went outside, still kind of got that, that anger and frustration built up in me. I knew I needed to just get away, just isolate myself so that I could calm myself down. And my mom had just gotten a car. I'm pretty sure this, was, this ha- had just happened. I think it was a Mazda 626. And it was, uh, I thought it was like the coolest thing because we, we had a new car. Uh, and the, the thing about this, this car is it had this really cool trick that if you're, I want you to think about this, if you're five years old and you've never seen a car that, do, that does this, it will blow your mind. The seat in the back would fold down to give you access to the trunk. Like that was cool. And that's also a great hiding place. And so what I did is I went, I, I got in the back of the car, pulled down the back seat of the, uh, to get to the trunk, called, crawled into the trunk, pulled the seat shut, and... I was isolated, and I was completely separated and apart from my family, and that was fine with me for a few minutes, because that gave me a chance to calm down, and eventually, once the the kind of frustration and the anger and the tears dried up just a little bit, I began to realize the situation that I was in, and it was not a good one. It was dark as could be in there. There may have been just like a ray of light. I mean, it wouldn't have been airtight, so there may have been just a, a tiny, tiny bit of light in there, but there was, not, uh, there, was, there was not much. And I remember at some point of being in there realizing just how dark it was and how very, very hot it was. Uh, I don't know what time of year it was. I have no idea. But I know that after laying in there for a few minutes, it was like, okay, this is this has gone from a good place to hide to a really, really bad place to hide. And I can't get out of here. You see, now, if you look in the back of your cars, they have like latches for dummies like me that lock themselves in the trunk. Um, but at the time, they didn't have like latches for, for people like me. They didn't have that. Uh, once you were in the trunk, you were in the trunk. And you were not going to get out of there. Um, it, it was, uh, it was not good. I honestly cannot tell you how long I was in there. Um, in my mind, I want to say it was like 45 minutes. It may have been like five minutes. I really don't know. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. And my mom doesn't know because she doesn't know at what point I got into the trunk. So there's really no way of knowing how long I was out there, but it was long enough that I began to panic. It was long enough that I began to scream and yell and bang on the roof of the trunk and nothing happened. Long enough for me to realize I was by myself out there and I was in, it was a problem. So I was there, dark, screaming, yelling. I would stop long enough to hear if I, if I saw it, it to, to, to know if I, I, I heard anything. Um, and I, I, I think, honestly, at one point, I may have, like, kind of fallen asleep because it was so dark and because I was so kind of, like, panicked that, that maybe the adrenaline kind of crashed a little. And I felt, I don't, I, again, I, I don't remember all the details, but I know it was not a good situation. And so I, I would, I, I remember laying there and then finally hearing somebody outside, hearing my mom yell for me, and I would start again banging on the trunk till my voice was raw and and, and, and trying to figure out, I, I don't know, I, di- I didn't know anything or care about anything at that point. I didn't care about the brownies anymore. I didn't care about any of that stuff. All I knew is that I desperately needed out of the darkness, and I had no idea when that time would come for me. I had no idea how long it would be until the darkness would lift. I was at the mercy of someone else coming to me for my rescue. 
And the waiting was the hardest part. But oh man, when that trunk opened, whenever that trunk opened, my mom got her keys, got the trunk open, and that fresh air came in, and that blinding light came in, and the embrace of my mom while I cried through my tears, and my mom was letting me know that I was okay, and it was all going to be all right, and that that everything was all right. There was nothing that compares to that moment. It was pure elation. It was joy. The waiting was over and the rescue had come. That is what Isaiah 9 is talking about. That kind of desperation, that kind of darkness, that kind of need for somebody to come and step in and intervene to pull you out of the darkness. That's what Isaiah 9 is talking about. It's Isaiah looking forward to a king that is to come. First in the short term, he's talking about a more immediate prophecy, but then a few hundred years to come in the future. A king that would bring them out of the darkness and into the light. Read verses 2 and 3 with me again. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you with the jo- as with the joy at, at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Do you feel the relief in those verses? The relief of the darkness lifting and the light that comes. Like this is not just a descriptor of what's happening. There is, there is, there is something in there that you can, you can kind of feel that relief. The waiting is over. The pain is past. The rescuer has come. Four different times the idea of joy or gladness is mentioned in that one verse, in verse 3. Joy, rejoice, joy, and gladness. Do you feel the elation of these people in what Isaiah is telling them will come, on what is going to happen? They weren't in a trunk for 10 minutes or 45 minutes or however long I was in there. They were walking in darkness for centuries with no idea of what would come next. They had hope, but I don't know, have you ever ever held on to something in the darkness when it's like super dark? Maybe it's just, just, just lying in your bed, maybe it's in your bedroom, I don't know. Have you ever held on to something in the darkness and, and, and honestly, you, you kind of you lose the sense of what like, your, your surroundings, you kind of lose your spatial sense because it is so dark. You see, the people of Israel had hope, and sometimes hope can be hard to hang on to in the darkness. And I wonder how many of you guys feel that this morning. Or maybe how many of you guys f- ha- have felt that in the past. You felt a darkness that's so dark, that's so heavy, that's got so much anguish to it, as Isaiah says here, that you kind of you lose what is going on around you. There's a, there's a faint hope in the darkness, but in the darkness you start to wonder, what is this I'm clinging on to anyway? Is this thing really going to help me out all that much? Is it real? I can't see. It's too dark to confirm it. You're clinging to the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we walk by faith and not by sight. But you're starting to doubt your senses. You can't trust anything. 
And the hope that you're holding on to kind of begins to mess with your mind a little bit. Because you can't trust your senses anymore and your world starts to spin a little bit and you start to doubt this thing that you once had so much hope in and you get disoriented, you get scared. If that's you this morning, I want you to hear the words of Isaiah chapter 9. Rescue is coming. Rescue is coming. I don't know when the light will burst forth. I don't know when the the darkness will be pierced. I don't know when you'll be able to come up for air for the first time in forever. I don't know. But I'm telling you, rescue is coming. It's the promise that we have in Isaiah chapter 9. But the waiting is the hardest part. It's uncanny how much this idea of waiting plays into the story of Scripture. But let me tell you the twin idea that comes with waiting, and that is joy. Yes, suffering may be part of the waiting. Yes, confusion and doubt may wage war in in, in your soul during this time. Yes, you may have to deal with, with suffering and, and, and you may have to go through this dark night of the soul while you wait. But when the dawn comes, it brings with it a joy that you cannot manufacture. There is no other way to get there. There is no other way to experience that type of joy. It's not joy that comes from a store. It's not joy that comes from a well-appointed house. It's not joy that comes from a, uh, from a, a well-put-together family. There's only one way to get to this joy that is, that is deeper and that is more abiding than anything else you will ever feel. By waiting. That's it. That's the only way to get there. There are no shortcuts on this one. There's no way around it. There's no easy paths to joy. There's no quick fixes. There's no numbing agents to help you get through it either. The waiting is the hardest part, but it's the only way. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That verse is worth hanging on to this morning. That verse is worth kind of writing on your heart, writing in your soul. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Their story doesn't end in the darkness. It could have. By all rights, it should have. But it doesn't. You know what it would have been an easy way to hear? You know what would have been an easy way to, 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 to hear uh, the, the way that that story would have been? The people who walked in darkness have lost all hope. That makes sense to us, right? Makes sense to me. The people who walked in darkness walked the wrong way. They took a wrong turn. They were walking and they couldn't tell where they were going, so they, they walked away and they took the wrong turn. The people who walked in darkness gave up. And just quit walking. All that would have made total sense. It would have made perfect sense. And we've all been there or we will be there. It's part of how God makes his disciples. 
You say, but why does it have to be that way? What, what, why would God do things that way? Isn't it a cruel and sadistic kind of a God who, 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 who takes these things and uses them this way? Why put us on the, 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 the kind of slow cooker rotisserie and make us go through that? Why not just kind of microwave us and get us there? That's a weird analogy, but it works. Why, why, would he, why would he not just kind of snap his fingers and say, boom, now you're holy. Boom, now you're good. Boom, the darkness is gone and light is here. Why would he not do that? Why would he take the slow route whenever he could do something in an instant? There's a couple of answers to that. I mean, I I, I can't answer that completely, but there's a couple of answers. uh, And one of those is, is related to this side of death and the other is related to the other side of death. This side of death, the shortest answer is that He didn't choose for us to go through that. We did. We did. We chose death. He chose rescue. But it's rescue on his own terms. There's just no way around the waiting in our stories because it's how God does it. But we've got to remember, he's under no obligation to show up for the rescue. He does not have to do it. The story could have said the people walked in darkness and just kept walking in darkness for the rest of eternity because no rescuer came to them. But it doesn't say that. It would have been the fair and the just thing to do, but that's not what the verse says. Fortunately for us, God isn't just fair and just. He is merciful and gracious. So this side of death... We deal with a world that is broken by sin. We deal with a world that is broken by sin, and and, and in our own lives, we have mangled our own worlds by our own sin. So mangled, we can't even tell how bad it is. It's like, you ever see one of those cars driving down the road that's clearly, they've not used the insurance money to fix up the car, right? They like pocketed the insurance money and they've said, I can deal with a few like bumps in the fender. But what they don't realize is that all they got is like a shell of a car and it looks ridiculous and they should not be driving it because it's safe. But, but it's like they're in the car. So as long as they're sitting in their seat, looking out their windshield, they can't tell how bad it is around them. That's how a lot of us go through life. Man, we're, we're driving some beat-up cars that have gone through a lot, and we feel like we're, we're driving a Mercedes, and we're not. And it's all been wrecked by our own sin. So what happens is that God shows us mercy in that while we were yet sinners, He sent His Son to die on our behalf so that God can then be merciful and just at the same time. But there's no quick fixes in that story. There's no quick fixes. God doesn't just say, kill a lamb and you're good. It's a bigger story than that. It is a long, hard process of redemption. And redemption required a man to be our substitute and God to be our redeemer. And Jesus was both. So Jesus came was born here, lived here, and was murdered here, all on our behalf, that he might bring many sons to glory. 
Listen to how the writer of Hebrews says this. I think this is pretty fascinating. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom by, by whom all things exist, in bringing many, sons to glo- bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Even for Jesus, there was no shortcuts. The darkness was there too. Even Jesus had to go through the dark. There were no shortcuts. He prayed for another way, and there was none. There was only one way, waiting in the darkness. And I'll be honest, I don't fully know why God does it this way. I surely wish he would not. I don't wish an ounce of suffering on any of us, on any of you. I do wish it could be a different way. I don't fully know why God makes us go through these things. And I know what I'm about to say. The second answer to this question is something that that some of you do not want to hear in this room. It's going to feel like it's trite and that it's not very helpful. But just listen to it. Write it in your heart. Some of you, you're going to identify with this immediately. Some of you are going to say, yeah, that's not going to work for me. But I'm just going to beg you, write it on your heart and hear me here. And the only reason that I can say this is because I know it's true. In part, we go through the darkness because the darkness teaches us to rejoice in the light. Listen, when I stomped my feet and stormed out for not getting my brownie, my mom could have grabbed me. She could have grabbed hold of me. She could have hugged me and told me it was all going to be okay. Everything was going to be fine. You're not getting a brownie, but it's all going to be okay. You'll be all right. You'll stop crying. Once we get home, you'll be fine. And I would have only gotten more angry, and and, and I would have only been more convinced that she was holding out on me for something that I thought, was good. When she said it would all be all right, I wouldn't have believed her. But hear me. When the trunk opens and my voice is raw from all the yelling that I've done and the sweat is pouring off of me and I began to question my five-year-old life decisions that had brought me to that point, whenever that moment happens and that trunk opens up, I leap into her arms. I throw my arms around her and I wanted nothing more than for her to tell me it's going to be all right. I loved the light then and I heard what she had to say to me then. My joy is unparalleled in that little moment. The air was fresh. It was cool. The embrace was assuring and my joy was full. So it is with us. The darkness and the waiting teach us to rejoice in the light and to celebrate when the waiting is over. This is in part what we celebrate at Christmas. The breaking of the dawn. Dawn's first light. The first indication that our waiting was not in vain, that our darkness is not eternal, and that our sin is not the final word. Think about all the waiting that happens in Scripture. Think about all the ways that it is described. From the first curse after the fall of Adam and Eve, that Eve would have an offspring and that Satan would strike his heel, but that offspring would then crush Satan's head. That promise is given, but then we wait. From the time they were banished from the garden, 
We've been waiting ever since. Abraham has promised a son and years go by and with nothing from God. He and Sarah, just waiting. Joseph locked in a prison cell, left for dead, waiting. God's people in slavery, waiting to see if God has forgotten them. God's people wandering in the desert, waiting for God to take them to the promised land. And on and on it goes. There's no shortcuts, guys. None. This is how he does this. Here in Isaiah chapter 8 and 9, God's people going to exile, walking in darkness and waiting. The prophets speak of this Messiah, the servant that is to come, that these people are desperately waiting for. We see it in Zechariah's prayer and in, in Mary's song. They were waiting for this day, longing for this day. Zechariah told that he would have a son that would be the forerunner to the Messiah, having doubt about what has happened and then waiting for John to be born so that he could speak again and utter praise to God. Mary waiting as she travels a road to Bethlehem, expecting this little baby to be born, waiting. The disciples gathered in an upper room for three days, despondent in the darkness, waiting. They didn't even know they were waiting. They thought they were done. But they were waiting. But oh man, on Easter morning, when the dawn pierced the darkness, no more waiting, no more dead Jesus, he was alive again. John tells us that there is darkness, but that, the, that when Jesus came into the world, that that. that he pierced the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome him. And then the disciples, they eat with Jesus, they talk with him, they fish with him, they walk with him, they learn from him, and then he leaves. And now here we are again, waiting. Not for the first advent, not for the first coming, we have the down payment from the first coming that says that the light is coming, that the light is here, but it's not in its full glory yet. So today we will take the Lord's Supper here in just a second. A reminder that darkness is part of this journey. A reminder of those disciples that saw Jesus' body broken and his blood spilled. And we will do this in remembrance of him, the one who was broken on our behalf. As always, I ask if you are a Christian, this tables, these tables will be open to you. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have embraced that light and, and you have embraced that, that idea that Jesus has conquered your darkness and you are actively following him, the tables will be open to you. If you have not done that, I would ask that you abstain from this and that you consider this morning what Christmas is about and what Jesus has done on our behalf. Even as we come and we take this Lord's Supper right here next to these candles that are lit, we remember the first Sunday of Advent, we started with no light at all in darkness. But each Sunday we have added more and more light. And I hope you'll come back on Christmas Eve and we will wait no longer. And we will celebrate the rescue that has come. And that rescue, his name is Jesus.
Some of you do not have joy in your life because you are walking in darkness and you don't even know it. And you've not had the rescue show up. You've not had any taste of that fresh air. You've not had anyone to embrace you and say it's going to be all right. You've not had that forgiveness come to you from Jesus that says it's going to be all right. But I'm telling you, the promise of Christmas is that it is there. The rescue has come. And when you know that, there is no joy that can compare. Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Friends, when we sing repeat, when we say repeat the sounding joy, when we sing repeat the sounding joy, whenever we say these things, we're not talking about put a smile on your face, it's going to be all right. We're talking about a people who were desperately in need of a rescue and the rescuer showed up. We're talking about a people, me and you, who walked in darkness and now have seen a great light. We rejoice with joy. Friends, this is the joy that we talk about. I hope that you know that joy. I hope that you have been embraced in that way. But hear me, if you have not, it is available to you. And I'd love nothing more than to talk with you about it, to pray with you, and to tell you about the rescue that has come in Jesus Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, as we prepare to take these elements, I pray that you will search our hearts. Father, I pray that we would confess those things that we run to as substitutes of joy. Those numbing agents that keep us from feeling the weight of the darkness. And Father, I pray that you would help us to feel the weight of the darkness so that we might know the depth of joy that comes at rescue. Father, even now as we take the Lord's Supper, as we light these Advent candles and we see kind of the the bookends of the, the life of Jesus in those two things, Pray that we would celebrate the first coming and that we would long for the second. And we would say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And that in that moment, we might know in full what we only know in part right now. And that our joy would be complete. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Tables are open. You're welcome.